The following audio drama is rated G for general audience. Looking back to all that has occurred to me since that eventful day, I am scarcely able to believe in the reality of my adventures. They were so wonderful that even now I am bewildered when I think of them. Well now, if that most impatient of men is hungry, what a disturbance he will make. <gasps> Monsieur Leidenbrock, so soon! Yes, Martha, but very likely the dinner is not half cooked, for it is not two yet. St. Michael's clock has only just struck half past one. Then why is the master come home so soon? Perhaps he will tell us that himself. Oh, here he is, Monsieur Axel. I will run and hide myself while you argue with him. Axel, follow me. Here I am, Uncle. Come with me to my study. I have the most marvelous thing to show you. <laughs> what? Not come in? My uncle was not a man to be kept waiting, so adjourning therefore all minor questions, I presented myself before him. He was fifty years old, tall, thin, and wiry. Large spectacles hid, to a certain extent, his vast round and goggle eyes, while his nose was irreverently compared to a thin file. We lived in a very nice house, in that very nice street, the Konigstrasse in Hamburg. When I say a nice house, I mean a handsome house, old, tottering, and not exactly comfortable to English notions. My uncle was rich, his house was his own property, and he had a considerable private income. To my notion, the best part of his possessions was his goddaughter Gruben. And the old French cook, Martha, the young lady, the professor and I were the sole inhabitants. Here's a remarkable book. What a wonderful book. What do you have there, uncle? Well, now, don't you see it yet? Why, I, I have a priceless treasure that I, I, I found this morning in rummaging in old Hevelia's shop. The Jew. What exactly is so special about this book, uncle, if I might ask? Why, Axel, it's an absolute treasure. It's very, very old. Look at the binding, the clearness of the characters. It's incredibly old, but it still opens so easily in my hands. Yes, so old, and in such good condition. Wonderful. Magnificent, Uncle. See? Isn't it a beauty? Yes, splendid. And look at its back. After 700 years. Why, Bozerian Kloss or Purgold might have been proud of such a binding. And what is the title of this marvelous work? This work is the Heimskringler of Schnorr Tullesen. The most famous Icelandic author of the 12th century. It is the chronicle of the Norwegian princes who ruled in Iceland. 
Indeed, of course it is a German translation. What? A translation? What should I do with a translation? This is the Icelandic original in the magnificent idiomatic vernacular, which is both rich and simple and admits of an infinite variety of grammatical combinations and verbal modifications. Like German. Yes, but in addition to all this, the Icelandic has three numbers like the Greek and irregular declensions of nouns proper like the Latin. Ah, and is the type good? Type? What do you mean by talking of type, wretched Axel? Type? Do you take it for a printed book, you ignorant fool? It is a manuscript. A runic manuscript. Runic? Yes. Do you want me to explain what that is? Of course not. Runic characters were in use in Iceland in former ages. They were invented, it is said, by Odin himself. Look there and wonder, impious young man, and admire these letters, the invention of the Scandinavian god. What's this? A page fell from the bowl? These are runic letters. They are exactly like those of the manuscript of Shanor Person. What on earth is their meaning? Runic letters appearing to my mind to be an invention of the learned to mystify this poor world. I was not sorry to see my uncle suffering the pangs of mystification. It is certainly old Icelandic. Dinner is ready. Monsieur Leidenbrock is not at the table? Who would believe it? Something serious is going to happen. Axel! Axel, come to me! I declare! Undoubtedly, it is runic. But there is a secret in it, and I mean to discover the key. Mm. Sit down and write to my dictation. I will substitute a letter of our alphabet for that of the runic. We will see then what that will produce. Now, begin and make no mistakes. M... E S S U N K A couple S E N couple A. That is completely incomprehensible, Uncle. I should like to know what it means. This is what is called a cryptogram or cipher, in which letters are purposely thrown in confusion, which, if properly arranged, would reveal their sense. Only I think that under this jargon there may lie concealed the clue to some great discovery. It's all rubbish if you ask me. What was that, my boy? Nothing, Uncle. You were saying? These two writings are not by the same hand. The cipher is of later date than the book, 
and undoubted proof of which I see in a moment. The first letter is a double M, a letter which is not to be found in Pearlson's book and which was only added to the alphabet in the 14th century. Therefore, there are 200 years between the manuscript and the document that fell from the book. A strictly logical conclusion, Uncle. I am therefore led to imagine that some possessor of this book wrote these mysterious letters. But who was that possessor? Is his name nowhere to be found in the manuscript? Look at On the flyleaf is a blot of ink. No, not ink. But a line of writing effaced by time. Now, if I can just make out what it says. Hmm. That is not only an Icelandic name, but that of a learned professor of the 16th century. A celebrated alchemist. Those alchemists, Avicenna, Bacon, Lully, Paracelsus, were the real and only servants of their time. They made discoveries of which we are astonished. <laughs> Has not this Sacknesum concealed under his cryptogram some surprising invention? It is so. It must be so. No doubt, but what interest would he have in thus hiding so marvelous a discovery? Why? How can I tell? Did not Galileo do the same by Saturn? We shall see. I will get at the secret of this document, and I will neither sleep nor eat until I have found it out. Oh. Nor you either. The juice? Then it's lucky I've eaten two dinners today. First of all, we must find out the key to this cipher. That cannot be difficult. The prospect of going without food and sleep is not a promising one. I best do my best to solve the mystery. There's nothing easier. <laughs> In this document, there are 132 letters, 77 consonants, and 55 vowels. This is a proportion found in southern languages, whilst northern tongues are much richer in consonants. Therefore, this is in a southern language. But what language is it? This Sacknesum was a very well-informed man. Now, since he was not writing in his own mother tongue, he would naturally select that which was currently adopted by the choice spirits of the 16th century. I mean Latin. The savants of the 16th century generally wrote in Latin. I am therefore entitled to pronounce this a priori to be Latin. It is Latin. I say, Latin is my favorite study. It's sacrilege to believe this gibberish belongs to the country of Virgil. Yes, it is Latin. But it is Latin confused and in disorder. Pertubata seo inordinata, as Euclid has it. Very well. If you can bring order out of that confusion, my dear uncle, you are a clever man. Let us examine carefully. Here is a series of 132 letters in apparent disorder. 
Now, this arrangement has evidently not been premeditated. It has arisen mathematically in obedience to the unknown law which has ruled in the succession of those letters. It appears to me a certainty that the original sentence was written in a proper manner and afterwards distorted by a law which we have yet to discover. Whoever possesses the key of this cipher will read it with fluency. What is that key? Axel, have you got it? I answered not a word, and for a very good reason. My eyes had fallen upon a charming picture suspended against the wall, the portrait of Gruben. I may confess it to you now, the pretty Verlandes and the professor's nephew loved each other with a patience and a calmness entirely German. We'd become engaged unknown to my uncle, who was too much taken up with geology to be able to enter into such feelings as ours. Come. The first idea which would come into anyone's head to confuse the letters of a sentence would be to write the words vertically instead of horizontally. Indeed. Now we must see what would be the effect of that. Axel, put down upon this paper any sentence you like. Any sentence. Only instead of arranging the letters in the usual way, one after the other, place them in succession in vertical columns, so as to group them together in five or six vertical lines. Good. Now, now set down those words in a horizontal line. Ilua lalwurb. Excellent. This begins to look just like an ancient document. The vowels and the consonants are grouped together in equal disorder. There are even capitals in the middle of words. And commas too, just as in Sarkisum's parchment. Now, to read the sentence which you have just written and with which I am wholly Unacquainted, I shall only have to take the first letter of each word, then the second, the third, and so forth. I love you there, my own dear Grauben. You are in love with Grauben? Yes, no. <laughs> you love Graben. There. Let us apply the process I suggested to the document in question. <clears throat> M A S S U N K A Capital S U N Capital A Period E C U F D O K S E G N U T T A M U R T N E C U R T S E R R E T T E comma N L period. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, that's not it. There's no sense in it.
He is gone. Yeah, completely gone. Well, and how about his dinner? He won't have any. And his supper? He won't have any. What? No, my dear Martha, he will eat no more. No one in the house is to eat anything at all. Uncle Leidenbrock is going to make us all fast until he has succeeded in deciphering an undecipherable scrawl. Oh, my dear. Must we then all die of hunger? I was very much of the same opinion, but not liking to say so, sent her away and began some of my usual work of classification. But try as I might, nothing could keep me from thinking alternately of this stupid manuscript and of the pretty Gruben. My head throbbed with excitement, and I felt an undefined uneasiness. I was possessed with the presentiment of coming evil. I could go out. No, hang it all. He would only be angered upon returning and finding me gone. At last. Finished. Now, where's my pipe? Ah. Now, where is my uncle? Probably walking down some deserted road talking to himself, no doubt. Hopefully he'll hit upon some clue and come home in a better humour. Perhaps I should give it a go, if I wish to avoid death by starvation. It's enough to drive one mad. I try every imaginable way of grouping the letters and nothing intelligible comes out. Ah! My head. I'm stifling. I must have air. What is this on the back of this wearisome puzzle? Latin words? I've discovered it! I have discovered the secret! All you have to do to understand the document was to read it backwards! The professor was right, that ingenious uncle of mine! He dictated it rightly, and by mere accident I have discovered the key! Let me read. What is this? What? That which I read had actually really been done? A mortal man had had the audacity to penetrate? No living being should ever know. Ah, but no, no. My uncle shall never know it. He would insist upon doing it too. He would want to know all about it. Ropes could not hold him, such a determined geologist as he is. He would start, he would, in spite of everything and everybody, and he would take me with him. And we should never get back. No, never. Never. Nine, nine. It shall not be. And as it is in my power to prevent the knowledge of it coming into the mind of my tyrant, I will do it. By dint of turning this document round and around, he too might discover the key. I will destroy it. Perish the fearful secret. Let the flames forever bury it in oblivion. Oh no, he returns. He sat in his armchair, and pen in hand he began what looked very much like algebraic formula. I followed with my eyes his trembling hands. I took count of every movement. Might not some unhoped for result come of it? I trembled too, very unnecessarily since the true key was in my hands and no other would open the secret. For three long hours my uncle worked on without a word, without lifting his head, rubbing out, beginning again, then rubbing out again, and so on a hundred times. 
Will not Monsieur take any supper tonight? No, Martha. When I awoke, my uncle was still at work. His red eyes, his pallid countenance, his matted hair, his feverish hands, his hectically flushed cheeks, showed how terrible had been his struggle with the impossible and what fearful fatigue he had undergone during that long, sleepless night. Though he was quite severe with me, I loved him, and my heart ached at his sufferings. No, no, I shall not speak. He would insist upon going. Nothing on earth could stop him. His imagination is a volcano, and to do that which other geologists have never done, he would risk his life. I will preserve silence. To discover it would be to kill Professor Leidenbrock. I will never have it laid to my door that I led him to his destruction. The front door is locked? I cannot go out and do my shopping. Is this done on purpose? Or is it a mistake? This seems like going rather too far. What? Should Martha and I be victims of a position of things in which we had not the smallest interest? Now it appears to me as if breakfast is going to be wanting, just as supper had been the night before. Yet I will not be conquered by the pangs of hunger. My uncle will go on working. His imagination is off rambling into the ideal world of combinations, far away from earth, and really far away from earthly wants. Hunger will not move me. I shall hold out. It is a point of honor. Ah, I must have food. This document is very absurd. Perhaps it might only be a gigantic hoax. Very likely he would only make the discovery himself when I should have suffered starvation for nothing. I must tell all. Uncle? Professor Leidenbrock. What? Did you speak? How about the key? What key? The key of the door? No, of these horrible hieroglyphics. He clutched me by the arm and keenly examined my countenance. His very look was an interrogation. I simply nodded. With an incredulous shrug of the shoulders, he turned upon his heel. Undoubtedly, he thought I had gone mad. Yes, that key. Chance. What is that you are saying? There, read it. But there is nothing in this. Nothing if you read it from left to right. But Mark, if from right to left... <laughs> Clever, Sagnusum! You had first written out your sentence the wrong way! In Sneffels Euculus Craterum, Ken de la Bat, Umbris Gitaris Juli Intra Calendus Descendi, Odes Viator, et Terrestri Centrum Atingis, Codfici, Ani Sagnusum. 
descend, bold traveller, into the centre of the yokel of Schnevels, which the shadow of Scartaris touches before the calends of July, and you will attain the centre of the earth, which I have done. Arnis Sacknusum. Oh. <laughs> What's the o'clock? Almost three. My dinner does not seem to have done me much good. Let me have something to eat. We can then start at once. Get my portmanteau ready. What for? And you're on. We start at once. My horror may be conceived. I resolved, however, to show no fear. Scientific arguments alone could have any weight with Professor Leidenbrock. Now, there were good ones against the practicability of such a journey. Penetrate to the centre of the earth. What nonsense. But I kept my dialectic battery in reserve for the suitable opportunity, and I interested myself in the prospect of my dinner, which was not yet forthcoming. It is no use to tell of the rage and implications of my uncle before the empty table. Explanations were given. Martha was set at liberty, ran off to the market, and did her part so well that in an hour afterwards my hunger was appeased, and I was able to return to the contemplation of the gravity of the situation. During all dinner time my uncle was almost merry. He indulged in some of those learned jokes which never do anybody any harm. Dessert over. He beckoned me into his study. You are a very ingenious young man. You have done me a splendid service. At a moment when, wearied out with the struggle, I was going to abandon the contest. Where should I have lost myself? None can tell. Never, my lad, shall I forget it. And you shall have your share in the glory to which your discovery will lead. Oh, come. He is in a good way. Now is the time for discussing that same glory. Before all things, I enjoin you to preserve the most inviolable secrecy. You understand? There are not a few in the scientific world who envy my success, and many would be ready to undertake this enterprise to whom our return should be the first news of it. Do you really think there are many people bold enough? Certainly. Who would hesitate to acquire such renown? If that document were divulged, a whole army of geologists would be ready to rush into the footsteps of Arne Sacknusson. I don't feel so very sure of that, uncle, for we have no proof of the authenticity of this document. What? Not of the book inside which we have discovered it? Granted, I admit that Sacknusson may have written these lines, but does it follow that he has really accomplished such a journey? And may it not be that this old parchment is intended to mislead? That is what we shall see. Well, in the first place, I wish to ask, what are this yokel, this sneffels, and this scartaris? Names which I have never heard before. Nothing easier. 
I received not long ago a map from my friend Augustus Peterman at Leipzig. Nothing could be more apropos. Take down the third atlas in the second shelf in the large bookcase, series Z, plate four. Here is one of the best maps of Iceland, that of Henderson, and I believe this will solve the worst of our difficulties. <sighs> you see this volcanic island? Observe that all the volcanoes are called Jokuls, a word which means glacier in Icelandic. And under the high latitude of Iceland, nearly all the active volcanoes discharge through beds of ice. Hence, this term of Jokul is applied to all the eruptive mountains in Iceland. But what does the word Sneffels mean? Follow my finger along the west coast of Iceland. Do you see Reykjavik, the capital? You do. There ascend the innumerable fjords that indent those sea-beaten shores and stop at the 65th degree of latitude. What do you see there? I see a peninsula looking like a thigh bone with the knee bone at the end of it. A very fair comparison, my lad. Now, do you see anything upon that knee bone? Yes, a mountain rising out of the sea. Right. That is Schneefels. That's Schneefels. That is Schneefels, a mountain about 5,000 feet in height, one of the most remarkable in the whole island, and certainly doomed to be the most celebrated in the world. For through its crater, we shall reach the center of the... Impossible. Very impossible. Because its crater is choked with lava by burning rocks, by infinite dangers. But if it is extinct? Extinct? Yes. The number of active volcanoes on the surface of the globe is at the present time only about 300. But there is a very much larger number of extinct ones. Now, Schneefel is one of these. Since historic times, there has been but one eruption in this mountain. That of 1219. From that time, it has quieted down more and more. And now, it is no longer reckoned among active volcanoes. What is the meaning of this word Scataris? And what have the Kalends of July to do with it? Mm. This improves the ingenious care with which Sackmussen guarded and defined his discovery. Schneffels, or Schneffel, has several craters. It was definitely necessary to point out which of these leads to the center of the globe. He observed that at the approach of the calends of July, that is to say, in the last days of June, one of the peaks, called Scartaris, flung its shadow down the mouth of that particular crater and committed that fact to his document. As soon as we have arrived at the summit of Schneefel, we shall have no hesitation as to the proper road to take. Well then, I am forced to admit that Sagnusum's sentence is clear and leaves no room for doubt. I will even allow that the document bears every mark and evidence of authenticity. That learned philosopher did get to the bottom of Schneefel's. He had seen the shadow of Scataris touch the edge of the crater before the cleanse of July. 
He may even have heard the legendary stories told in his day about that crater reaching to the center of the world. But as for reaching it himself, as for performing the journey and returning, if he ever went, I say no. He never, never did that. Why so, young man? All the theories of science demonstrate such a feat to be impracticable. The theories say that, do they? Oh, unpleasant theories. How the theories will hinder us, won't they? Yes. It is perfectly well known that internal temperature rises one degree for every 70 feet in depth. Now, admitting this proportion to be constant and the radius of the Earth being 1500 leagues, there must be a temperature of 360,032 degrees at the center of the Earth. Therefore, all the substances that compose the body of this Earth must exist there in a state of incandescent gas. For the metals that most resist the action of heat, gold and platinum, and the hardest rocks, can never be either solid or liquid under such a temperature. I have therefore good reason for asking if it is possible to penetrate through such a medium. Zoet, it is the heat that troubles you. Of course it is. Were we to reach a depth of 30 miles, we should have arrived at the limit of the terrestrial crust, for there the temperature will be more than 2,372 degrees. Are you afraid of being put into a state of fusion? I will leave you to decide that question. This is my decision. Neither you, nor anybody else, knows with any certainty what is going on in the interior of this globe, since not the twelfth thousandth part of its radius is known. Science is eminently perfectible, and every new theory is soon routed by a newer. There, I will tell you that true savants, amongst them Platon, have demonstrated that if a heat of 360,000 degrees existed in the interior of the globe, the fiery gases arising from the fused matter would acquire an elastic force which the crust of the earth would be unable to resist, and that it would explode like the plates of a bursting oil. That is Poisson's opinion, my uncle, nothing more. Granted, but it is Likewise, the creed adopted by other distinguished geologists that the interior of the globe is neither gas nor water, nor any of the heaviest minerals known. For in none of these cases would the earth weigh what it does. Oh, with figures you may prove anything. But is it the same with facts? Is it not known that the number of volcanoes has diminished since the first days of creation? And if there is no central heat, may we thence conclude that it is in process of diminution? My good uncle, if you will enter into the legion of speculation, I can discuss the matter no longer. I do not believe in the dangers and difficulties which you, Axel, seem to multiply. And the only way to learn is, like Arnisakerson, to go and see. Well, let us go and see. Though how we can do that in the dark is another mystery. And why not? May we not depend upon electric phenomena to give us light? May we not even expect light from the atmosphere, the pressure of which may render it luminous as we approach that center? Nothing is impossible. But silence. Do you hear me? 
silence upon the whole subject and let Nova get before us in this design of discovering the center of the earth. Am I convinced of the truth of what I had heard? Had I not bent under the iron rule of the Professor Leidenbrock? Am I to believe him in earnest in his intention to penetrate to the center of this massive globe? Had I been listening to the mad speculations of a lunatic, or to the scientific conclusions of a lofty genius? Where did truth stop? Where did error begin? It is quite absurd. There is no sense about it. No sensible young man should for a moment entertain such a proposal. The whole thing is non-existent. I have had a bad night. I have been dreaming of horrors. Axel! Oh, what? How have you come to meet me? Is this why you are here, sir? Oh. But what is the matter? Well, it was no use mincing the matter. I told her all. She listened with awe and for some minutes could not speak. Axel! My dear Gruben. Oh, Axel! That would be a splendid journey. Yes, Axel. A journey worthy of the nephew of a savant. It is a good thing for a man to be distinguished by some great enterprise. What? Gruben, won't you dissuade me from such an undertaking? Oh, no, my dear Axel. I would willingly go with you, but that a poor girl would only be in your way. Is that quite true? It is true. Gruben, we will see whether you will say the same thing tomorrow. Tomorrow, I will say the same as I have today. It was night when we arrived at the house in Konigstrasse. I expected to find all quiet there, my uncle in bed as was his custom, and Martha giving her last touches with a feather brush. But I had not taken into account the professor's impatience. I found him shouting and working himself up amidst a crowd of porters and messengers who were all depositing various loads in the passage. Our old servant was at her wit's end. Are we really going? Of course you unhappy boy! Could I have dreamed that you would have gone out for a walk instead of hurrying your preparations forward? And when do we go? The day after tomorrow, at Debre. I could hear no more. I fled for refuge into my own little room. All hope was now at an end. My uncle had been all the morning making purchases of a part of the tools and apparatus required for this desperate undertaking. The passage was encumbered with rope ladders, knotted cords, torches, flasks, grappling irons, alpenstocks, pickaxes, iron-shod sticks, enough to load ten men. I spent an awful night. Next morning, I was called early. I had quite decided I would not open the door. My dear Axel! My pale countenance and my red and sleepless eyes should work upon Gruben's sympathies and change her mind. Ah, my dear Axel, I see you are better. A night's rest has done you good. Done me good? Axel, I have had a long talk with my guardian. He is a bold philosopher, 
a man of immense courage, and you must remember that his blood flows in your veins. He has confided to me his plans, his hopes, and why and how he hopes to obtain his object. He will no doubt succeed. My dear Axel, it is a grand thing to devote yourself to science. What honor will fall upon Herr Leidenbrock and so be reflected upon his companion? When you return, Axel, you'll be a man. You'll be his equal. Free to speak and, and act independently. And free to... to uh, <sighs> the dear girl only finished the sentence by blushing. Her words revived me, yet I refused to believe we should start. I drew Gruben into the professor's study. Uncle, is it true that we are to go? Why do you doubt? Well, I don't doubt, but I ask, what need is there to hurry? Time! Time flying with irreparable rapidity. But it is only the 16th of May, and until the end of June... What? You monument of ignorance! Do you think that you can get to Iceland in a couple of days? If you had not deserted me like a fool, I should have taken you to the Copenhagen office, to Liffender and Company, and you would have learned that there is only one trip every month from Copenhagen to Reykjavik on the 22nd. Well? Well... If we waited for the 22nd June, we should be too late to see the shadow of Scartaris touch the crater of Schnefels. Therefore, we must get to Copenhagen as fast as we can to secure our passage. Go and pack up. There was no reply to this. I went up to my room. Gruben followed me. She undertook to pack up all things necessary for my voyage. She was no more moved than if I had been starting for a little trip to Lubeck or Heligoland. Her little hands moved without haste. She talked quietly. She supplied me with the sensible reasons for our expedition. She delighted me. And yet, I was angry with her. Now and then I felt I ought to break out into a passion. But she took no notice and went on her way as methodically as ever. Finally, the last strap was buckled. I came downstairs. All that day, the philosophical instrument makers and the electricians kept coming and going. Martha was distracted. Is Master mad? Yes. And is he going to take you with him? Yes. Where to? Down. Down into the cellar? No, lower down than that. Tomorrow morning at six o'clock precisely, we start. Such dreams and deliriums. I am grasped by the professor's sinewy hand, dragged along, hurled down, shattered into little bits. My life has become an endless fall.
5 in the morning. I best get down to breakfast. Virgil knows it's not too late to change his mind. Good morning, Axel. The carriage arrives at half past five, so eat swift. <sighs> Where's your box? It is ready. Then make haste down, or we shall lose the train. It was now manifestly impossible to maintain the struggle against destiny. I went up again to my room, and rolling my portmanteaus downstairs, I darted after him. At that moment, my uncle was solemnly investing Gruben with the reins of government. My pretty villain days was as calm and collected as was her wont. She kissed her guardian, but could not restrain a tear in touching my cheek with her gentle lips. Gruben. Go, my dear Axel. Go, my dear Axel, go! I am now your betrothed, and when you come back, I will be your wife. We climbed into the carriage, and scarcely pausing to wish anyone goodbye, we started on our adventurous journey into the center of the earth. Broken Sea Audio Productions presents the audio drama production of Jules Verne's A Journey to the Center of the Earth. Starring Dave McIver as Axel. Jim Patton as Professor Liedenbrock. Bernadette M. Groves as Groban. And Lynn Cullen as Martha. Adapted for audio drama, directed and produced by Elaine V. Barrett. Music by Celestial Eon Project at mixeri.net slash essence. Murray Alexander's Ragtime Band. Cantiga at cantigamusic.com. And Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. For more information, please visit www.brokensea.com. In the 26th century, Earth thrives after recovering from nearly total ecological catastrophe. To prevent similar disasters from happening on other worlds, Earth and the Galactic Confederation built a massive interstellar arc, the zooship Gaia. Commanded by Captain Elizabeth Monroe, Gaia's mission is to protect wildlife and habitats on worlds throughout the galaxy. These are their adventures. There are heroes... The galaxy is full of bad guys, and in order to take out the trash, you have to be willing to get your hands dirty. Oh, see, sense woman. Why do you always have to do things the hard way? There are villains. <sighs> you will all feel my wrath very soon. <laughs> 
We are the stuff of nightmares. We are all that civilized races fear in the dark. And there are those somewhere in between. I am an assassin woman. I am the assassin of assassins. I'm not a dog to grovel at your feet. I never ask anyone to grovel. That would be uncivilized. In season one of Gaia's Voyages, these forces collide, and the fate of Gaia and her crew stands on the edge of a Venjari blade. Broken Sea Audio Productions presents Gaia's Voyages, only at www.brokensea.com. In 1963, Pierre Boulle's book, La Planète des Sanges, known in English as Planet of the Apes, was published. In 1968, 20th Century Fox released Planet of the Apes as a major motion picture, creating a worldwide sensation that continues to this day. In 1975, Mike McCarthy, Tom McCabe, Michael A. Caulfield, and Bill Kenwright brought Planet of the Apes to stages in the United Kingdom. The history and script of which was preserved by Rich Handley of Hasline Books, Simeon Scrolls Magazine, and the Planet of the Apes Wikia site. In 2013, Broken Sea Audio, in arrangement with playwright Mike McCarthy, brings you the official audio drama adaptation of the UK stage production of Planet of the Apes. Don't move, human. Okay, okay, my hands are up. Silence, beast. Human, what do you want here? We are friends. We come in peace. Come in peace, have we? We shall soon see about that. Put them in a cage. Yes, sir. Move, beast. What? But we came in peace. In the cage, human. This is Jake Sampson, Monster Hunter. I don't always listen to old-time radio or podcast audio dramas. But when I do, I prefer BrokenSea.com. Stay listening, my friends. year 1988, the crime rate in the United States rises 400%. The once great city of New York becomes the one maximum security prison for the entire country. 
A 50-foot containment wall is erected along the New Jersey shoreline, across the Harlem River, and down along the Brooklyn shoreline. It completely surrounds Manhattan Island. All bridges and waterways are mined. The United States police force, like an army, is encamped around the island. The prison's name, New York Maximum Security Penitentiary, Manhattan Island. There are no guards inside the prison, only prisoners and the worlds they have made. This is the Broken Sea Audio production of Escape from New York. President, bring him out in 24 hours, and you're a free man. I'll think about it. No time. Give me an answer. Let's get a new president. Trade Center dead ahead. Should be there now. mothers call their children little angels. Mine just happened to be right. What did that mean? I don't know other than I heal faster and age slower than anyone around me. And sometimes I know things. Something dark and evil is coming to Gypsy Cove. Something we're meant to stop. Myself, my family, and the good people of town. The problem is, in a town like this, good and evil don't wear signs, and no one knows for sure. I think, hope, and pray that I and my family are ready for what is coming. When the fight comes down, what side will you be on? Gypsy Cove, coming to Gypsy Audio, 2010. GypsyAudio.org.